goaded with the sauce, the Yamak sauce. It's Southpaw Deep Space Nine. Hey, everybody, this is the show where I, Angel Marti, guide your friend of mine, Southpaw Sam, into the journey of Star Trek fandom by watching episode by episode Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the most communist Star Trek show. And he and I discuss uh, the different messages, morals, implications, political and cultural, overt and implicit uh, of each episode. Sam, how are you doing? Oh, you know, better than some, not as good as some, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm now, now the, the goal of that, ep- of asking, how are you? Like a, a, at the beginning of every episode is not to actually like get an answer, but just to see what new creative deflection you can come up with. So <laughs> thank you for that new creative exercise on my end. Wait, wait, wait. How are you? Uh, let's see. Um, I am maintaining my solid state and not dissipating into a cloud of protoplasm. So it could be better. I mean, could be worse. I don't, maybe I do want to be protoplasm. Maybe that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> I'm actually doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm doing this on like a full night's sleep. So even though I wasn't super enamored with this episode, I won't, I didn't hate it as much as I hated uh, Battle Lines. Uh, so, but speaking of this episode, so it is episode 14, season one, Progress. I always want to say it like that, Progress. So we open on uh we open on the b plot which is basically we we sort of got this in uh the b plot of storytellers as well it just seems like the writers at this point of the season really want to pick uh jake and nog to be like the little rascals in space because they're like playing cards in quark's bar after hours and they're like or, or it's kind of like, Ed, no, it is perfectly like Ed, Ed, and Eddie. They're just like bored kids living in the suburbs looking for a scheme to pass the time. If anybody ever watched that show. But so they overhear Quark berating, um, they didn't name him in the episode, but he's Broik, uh, one of the other uh, Ferengi workers in the bar, uh, having overordered on uh, Cardassian Yamak sauce. Uh, which apparently is something that only the Cardassians can stomach. And now that they're no longer on the station, it's just a bunch of useless inventory taking up space. So it's like Vegemite, basically. Uh, So, but Nog uh, gets the idea to flip this Yamak sauce into money and uh, drags Jake into it. Uh, He he describes the idea by saying that uh, his lobes are tingling, and when a lobe tingles, it means only one thing: opportunity. And at this point in the, as at this point in the season, we know pretty well that like stimulating a Ferengi's earlobes is basically erotic. But uh, we cut to the main uh, plot of this episode, which is uh, we get in the captain's log, uh, which is, by the way, I, I've always said I've always said this about Star Trek in general that like the captain's log is such a great device to just get away with exposition and <laughs> you know to do it in a way that makes sense. So I always like having those at the beginning of episodes. Uh, we learn that Bajor is finally growing into more of a mature interstellar planet state because it's going to start extracting resources from the environment. Uh, it's about to. Uh, tap into the molten core, oh yeah, of one of its moons, Gerardo. Uh And uh, Cisco and the DS9 crew are helping oversee uh, this tapping, oh yeah. Uh, 
the on board the station to help them oversee it is uh, Minister Turan, who's like sort of a Basil Faulty type character, just this annoying uh, uh, persnickety bureaucrat who seems to specifically be there just to anger Kira. Uh, and uh, just one scene of them together, Kira is just like, I'm going to leave to inspect. Uh, so Kira and Dax leave on a runabout to inspect this moon that's about to be tapped. Oh, yeah. Uh, they find a humanoid presence is on this moon, and even though all the inhabitants were supposed to evacuate. So Kira uh, beams down to investigate. Uh, the, when, when they beam down, I, first thing I notice is that the uh, backdrop looks a lot like the village from last week's episode. But that's kind of mean of me to point that out, because come on, TV, TV is expensive. Reuse what you, what you have. But the more important thing is that as soon as she materializes, she is greeted by angry farm implement wielding colonists. Cut to the main titles. Uh, the only reason we don't hear banjos playing is because sound waves don't propagate through the vacuum of space. But uh, the leader of the angry farmers uh, comes out of his hut. He basically th- this happens a lot when I watch '90s television, or at least when I watch Star Trek, is that sometimes it feels like the guest star du jour feels like a more affordable version of some more famous type. And in this case, it's like this guy feels like affordable for TV Kirk Douglas, like that kind of like, you know, he has sort of a similar facial shape, the kind of like grizzled old dude. Um, He comes out and sort of calls the other two off, uh, explaining that they just don't like uniforms. And for some reason, even though these are Bajorans, they have, they're like Bajorans from Kansas or something because they have this like vaguely Midwestern Southern kind, basically like these farmer acts, uh, farmer accents. And uh, they, they very much are these stereotypical pig headed homesteaders who won't be moved away uh, even when they're going to be melted by a goddamn molten core being tapped. But uh, because they are so folksy, uh, they will uh, invite Kira in for supper and Kira because uh, she just has no, uh, just it will obey any Bajoran telling her to do something folksy uh, goes inside. So we cut back to the station, and Jake and Nog, on this week's caper, run into this week's example of, hey, this show can afford more than just four heads now, because we see this Lesepian who has like an elaborate like head prosthetic and uh, and chin piece and stuff, which I think uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this was probably stimulated by Babylon 5 having more complex alien makeup. <laughs> I will credit anything good about Star Trek Deep Space Nine to having to, you know, it was like the Monday Night Wars. WWE, WWF was only good because it had to compete against WCW. But so they run into this Lesepian cargo runner who does a lot of dealings with the Cardassians. And I'm like, hey, you can sell off this, this yamak sauce. And uh, I guess the advantage of interstellar trade is that if you're dealing with somebody from another species, they can't assume that you are of an adolescent age from how, they, how you look. Because this dude just immediately takes this like teenage human and Ferengi seriously. Uh, but instead of offering to pay in Latinum, which was uh, Nog's uh, intended goal, he wants to do a trade. He wants to trade the Yamak sauce 
for a hundred gross of self stealing self sealing stem bolts. Uh, and while Nog wants to press just for latinum, uh, Jake convinces him that the greatest value these stem bolts have is being able to advance the B plot. So they agree to the trade. Back on the moon, uh, basically the the whole. So this guy, this old farmer dude, is his whole thesis seems to be he's going to be condescending and sexist to Kira, but for some reason, because he's old, it's charming somehow. Like he, <laughs> like he talks about like how he, he'll tell Kira like, uh, you know, that you look even prettier in this light, and she just kind of shrugs it off. Uh, we learn we we get some of the backstory. Uh, the older dude has been there for forty years, and then the two younger people with him uh, have been there for eighteen years, and neither of them speak because they uh, suffered uh, some unspeakable violation from the Cardassians. It turns out that before they were able to uh, escape the occupation, the Cardassians uh, surgically removed their SAG cards, so that's why they can't speak <laughs> on camera, at least. Uh, no, apparently they've been mutilated somehow. I guess it just was easier easier that way. What if it was like if if maybe they were like we need more characters in this episode, and then the writer was like, "I'm not going to write more dialogue for them. I'm too tired." <laughs> and this was just their compromise. So, uh, I, Kira Kira eventually uh, sort of she realizes that the whole like being a sexist douchebag is apparently a purposeful bit to try and get her to leave them alone and just purposefully like repulse her uh but after having been around bashir this long we know that it's going to take a lot more than that to get rid of kira uh there's an interesting uh bit where like when kira basically like says like okay i know you're trying to like you know just be an asshole to get rid of me so let's cut the bullshit and like be a little bit more direct with each other and Mullabox, uh, sorry, we learn that this guy's name is Mullabox, and he asks Kira for her name. Uh, but uh, he then says, when she says, "I'm Major Kira," uh, he then says, uh, "Your given name." And we, and she says, "You know, her given name's Nerys." And uh, Sam, I don't, um, I think we may have talked about this before, but remind me: Did we discuss how Bajoran names are much are ordered much like uh, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean surnames, where the surname comes first? No. I don't think you mentioned it. Yeah. No, this is, I, I think it was mentioned briefly in the emissary, but maybe we didn't talk about it in, in our episode. But yeah, so so Kira is her surname. And so Nerys is her first name. And uh, we'll learn, as we get further into the show, like more characters that are like, you know, close to her, will address her as Nerys. And then we learn that her mother's name is Kira Maru, etc. So uh, I find this, I, I, I want to know, like, I'll let I'll let you speak on your reaction to that as far as like oh no they have to Asianize the the aliens <laughs> even more or not or whatever your feelings are about that. Yeah, I mean we've talked about that a lot about how to make somebody alien in space you just make them more Asiatic so it fits. Again, Babylon Five was able to make the Centauri who are basically like Napoleonic French slash Roman Empire, so it is possible. So. You know, what's interesting here is that, like, my first reaction to how Kira is so, like, immediately indulgent to Mullabach, uh 
is it's all it almost feels like even though they're the same race they're all Bajorans it feels like a white guilt type of reaction like that she's in in this situation where these people are like more oppressed or I guess more I mean yeah she's she well she is on we get to this we get to more explicit discussion of this later but like now she's the one in a situation of of having to exert power and her reaction to that is to just sort of, you know, uh, react overly indulgently to make up for her own guilt about it. Uh, but then finally, you know, after some more like uh, folksy, like eating simple farmer food, uh, she finally lays it down straight that the moon's core is going to get tapped. Oh, yeah. In seven days. And they're just uh, that they, Malabak and his two, uh, two silent friends are just three people holding up a project that is going to benefit thousands of other Bajorans. Earlier in the episode, a minister, the minister says, like, specifically, like, the energy that they're going to tap from this uh, moon is going to warm, you know, thousands of Bajoran homes during, during the winter. Which, they, again, again, like, winter on what part of the planet? But that's, you know, we, we all, we've already talked about that over, over monolithizing cultures that take up an entire planet. But whatever. What the... The winter, the planet-wide winter. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. There's a there's a cool line here that that um that basically basically he Akira's telling them you can just move back to Bajor now and they seem to be a little bit too hesitant and there's a good line here where Kira says what we're trying to create now i.e. you know Bajor post occupation is what you weren't allowed to have then and which I you know it's like we we sort of get this theme of like it's not just like Kira's discomfort with uh being in this position of power, but also this sort of like generational trauma and communicating across generational lines. And, uh, but it, but, uh, Mullabach is not convinced. He says he can't really, his home is on this moon and he can't just simply return to Bajor and have his fulfilling life as he has. The theme seems to be the transition from colonialism to neoliberalism, which has actually come up in previous episodes where Kira is questioning what she's doing. Is it the right thing? And she comes off as the reformer who's like, well, somebody needs to do this, right? And so it's touching on that theme again where, okay, here's progress, but at what cost? What does it cost to play with the big boys? And then who do you have to collaborate with to play with the big boys? And what are the things you have to extract and do on your own country to do these things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, once we got to this point of the series uh, to, of the episode, it actually made me start thinking about um, uh, there's a Chinese film by director uh, Jia Zhangke. It was released in 2006. It's called Still Life. And it's uh, in Chinese name is San Xiaohaoren. Uh, and it is, uh, it's about uh, a coal miner who returns to his hometown uh, only to find that it's basically been flooded because of construction of the Three Gorges Dam, like an actual dam that was built uh, in China. And so that idea of like 
you know, yeah, the the rural life having to suffer in the name of like uh, technological progress for the sake of you know fuel res- uh, uh, more resources, more fuel, more energy, um, but done at done in space as always. But uh, before we can further meditate on that, we go back to the station where uh, Nog goes back to Quarks. Because they need now, they need to actually access the Yamak sauce to trade for these stem bolts. And uh, through some dialogue, for uh, we learn that Ferengi have no qualms about child labor because apparently Nog has been doing a lot of jobs around the bar. But uh, he basically, this is almost like a non conflict because he just tells Quark, Hey, I'm going to take the Yamak sauce to the matter reclamation unit because you clearly don't want it. And Quark's just like, Okay, do anything with it. But then we cut back to Green Acres, and we hear more about uh, Mullabach's original uh, escape from the Cardassian labor camp. Uh, he's telling a sort of a long, rambling story to Kira about stowing away on a Cardassian ship that landed on this moon, Gerardo. And uh, he then overpowered six crew members on, on, the, uh, on the ship and then survived starvation through sheer willpower. Like, he's basically the Bajoran Steven Seagal. It's just like telling stories that he knows are BS, but like, who cares? (laughs) And Kira, though, because, you know, one thing we'll we'll say about Kira is that even if she is riddled with guilt, she does never, she never has a broken BS detector. So she's listening along kind of like the granddaughter at Thanksgiving who listens to a grandpa's story that she knows is bullshit and, uh, you know, indulges it out of pity for the fact that, uh, you know, he has the terminal disease of, of uh, old. But then uh, he starts asking Kira about her life. Molbox asking, like, you know, what it was like uh, to uh, fight in the resistance. And he uh, sort of flippantly says uh, that he's sorry he missed the fun. And then Kira gets a little bit riled up about, you know, why are, what do you mean fun? But then we get to this interesting point where, so... Mullabach basically asks, like, you know, you had no chance. Uh, everybody probably thought you had no chance. Why did you end up winning, you know, in, uh, at all? And then she says, because we hung on like fanatics. And so we're starting to see this, uh, that Mullabach's trying to get her to understand that he knows that this is like a hopeless cause, but it's just, it seems like the principle of the thing and probably just the fact that he's, you know, he's already old. Uh, you know, he has no reason to not just hang on to the one bit of stability and familiarity he's uh, he's uh, gotten to. But uh, but then Kira responds by saying that, you know, once they tap the core, oh yeah, the atmosphere is going to be filled with carbon and sulfur compounds. Uh, but Mulvach's like, uh, I'll figure it out. He basically thinks that you can like fight a protracted people's war against air itself. Yeah, his motivation was, uh, you know, it's one of those things about this episode, right? It's not very clear. But one thing I did like is Mullabach compares the provisional government and the Federation to the Cardassians. And this is a interesting point because the thing they have in common is extraction, right? They both were doing this to extract resources to gain more power. So based on that, another point I want to make is about energy, which is important to understand for even geopolitical understanding in real life. Energy is power, not only in a world without universal currency, but also we're reminded of that now 
with oil and natural gas prices. Those who control energy and extract energy and can control both have power. Yeah, no, it is. It is interesting that like we kind of have the same kind of dynamic going on at both the intraplanetary level and then also the broader sort of interplanetary level with the whole like control of the Bajoran wormhole as, you know, access uh, access to travel routes. Well, I think it's also just reminding us what's at play and what is important in worldcraft. And one is energy. And to your point about wormhole, wormhole is an analog to on Earth controlling the waterways, the shipping lanes and the travel lanes, which is why the U.S. has by far the biggest navy and why they have to have the biggest navy, because they want to control all the waterways. And that's part of how they have power. Right. So Kira finally just accepts that uh, that Mullabok's just going to stay there and die, and she'll uh, relay his curmudgeonly sass as an official response. So we get back to the state uh, station, and uh, Jake and Nog now have their stem bolts. Uh, and I remember, uh, I think during one of the last, I think I re- during the B plot of the storyteller, I think I already made reference to this feeling like little rascals, and then. The, what really seals this feeling like a like a early 20th century like little you know comedic short is that uh before i made i made comparisons to odo being like the irish cop coming to box their ears and you know send them back to school but this time the one who comes in is o'brien so it's even more perfect <laughs> Except instead of being like, well, now what's all this then? He's just like, well, he basically does say that, but he's just like, I don't even know what all this is then. He's, he's like saying, hmm, what do you need these self-sealing stem bolts for? I don't even know what they're for. Um, and then so even though, even though because O'Brien's not a fucking cop, he does leave them alone uh, after, after just, you know, messing with them a little bit. Uh, but it does render the problem that... Uh, Jake and Jake and Nog don't even know what the hell a self-sealing stem bolt is for. So how are they going to sell merchandise that they can't even explain the use of? So this made me just think about why can't they just ask the computer what the self-sealing stem bolts do, right? That's true. <laughs> I didn't even I, <laughs> I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Throughout the next generation and DS9, they're constantly asking the computer, computer, tell me this, tell me that. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Except all of a sudden in this episode, computers don't exist. To your point about little <laughs> rascals, they're also going back to like little rascals technology, right? The same type of lack of technology problems they had in their day. How do we figure stuff out? How did I not <laughs> notice that? How did I not notice that? Somehow it just, I was so, the the establishment of that, of that vibe was just so fully, like it didn't even think, yeah, they were just like, like even in the next generation, they were just like, hey, computer, tell me what the fuck Dharmic and Gelat at Tanagra is. And that was like the one thing that stumped a fucking Starfleet computer because it was a pure metaphor, but it still was able to give them something useful. Wow. Okay. <sighs> well, speaking of uh, tech, deficient technology, uh, we go well. Uh, we go. Akira uh, comes back to the station uh, to tell Minister Turan and Cisco that uh, uh, Mullabok, uh, the stubborn old coot, will not leave. However, uh, Minister Turan says he won't postpone the tapping. Oh, yeah, and refuses to let the holdouts 
pulled them out. Uh, so he s- supposes they should just beam nap them off the surface, just forcefully beam them up. But then Kira says that would mean they were acting like the Cardassians. Ooh, she just called him a Bajoran capo. Uh, but then uh, Turan says, uh, you know, threatens to take her off this assignment. And, uh, you know, if you can't complete this, I'll find somebody else. But uh, Kira says that won't be necessary. She gets back in line. So she goes uh, straight back to the moon. Um, with uh, two uh, security grunts with the intent to just gather up all of their shit and move them off by force if necessary. So uh, Molobok comes out and confronts Kira, and Kira is saying that she's doing what she has to do, and, and he says, well, so am I. And apparently what ne- needs to be done is spinning a folksy yarn, which he does kind of spend a lot of this episode doing, I didn't even remember what I didn't even remember what he was actually. He just has some sort of long monologue. Uh, but then the two security grunts come back with the two silent people, and apparently one of one of them uh, stuck one of the security grunts like a pig, and he's bleeding. But then seeing that uh, Mullabach just goes full Kirk Douglas and charges the grunts, basically committing suicide by space cop because he gets shot. Although he's not totally dead yet because Kira. Uh, feels his pulse, and then tells them to summon Dr. Bashir. So back on the station, uh, in the next stage of, uh, of this whole uh, business uh, little old lady who swallowed a fly, um, Jake and Nog are calling the... Uh, so I forgot to mention, the ste- stem bolts were, rich, were bought off of the, uh, the trader because the person who originally ordered the stem bolts from the trader was a Bajoran dude who couldn't pay for them. And so now uh, they are calling the original Bajoran dude who ordered the stem bolts, uh, but they're using some device to like disguise their voice and their image. Uh, Even though like the, the trader dude was perfectly fine with doing business with them just the way they looked and sounded. So whatever. Um, they, this, this is basically an excuse for them to pull the space equivalent of the three kids in a trench coat gag. Like they, like, uh, Jake and Nog, uh, refer to themselves as the no J consortium, which is them being Vincent Adultman, uh, Bojack Horseman reference for anybody who doesn't get it. Uh, but the Bajoran dude says he doesn't have any like Latinum to pay for it, but he offers to trade them for a piece of land, which Almost to me sounded like one of those Facebook grift ads for like become a lord in Scotland or whatever. Uh, but uh, Nog just wants the Latinum, but Jake uh, insists that they take the deal because I think I think uh, it sucks that it took until the 24th century, but it's nice to finally uh, see a black man get his seven tessipates and a mule. <laughs> It's funny how the writers are purposely making fun of land when we live in a world where land is the pinnacle asset. And I guess that's the joke, right? The obsession over real estate, which we have to remember at this time was really heating up, which led to the financial crisis a few years later. Real estate speculation was also causing a similar crisis in other countries. If we remember, Frieza from Dragon Ball Z was modeled on a real estate speculator, per the (laughs) words of... uh, Akira Toriyama. To tie it back to today, the things that happened in 08, 09, we really never recovered from. People think we did, but part of today's problems is because of the ramifications of the monetary things they did back then. 
I'm, I wanted to, I, I kept feeling like, why is it that Nog, it, feel, it felt out of character to me that Nog would not see the value in property. And I'm just going to chalk that up to Nog being young, you know, because in, especially in the Nagus, we like know that Ferengi have, you know, a very strong concept of location, 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 because, you know, the Grand Nagus says that the bar being because of its location was the real source of, of uh, being able to gain economic power. So we're not going to credit this to any kind of weird uh, cultural ignorance. So we go back to the moon, Molobox alive, and uh, we have a brief uh, battle uh, with, between him and Dr. Bashir as a collision of the forces of uh, uh, Horny and Grumpy, uh, which, but it's brief. Um, so the two silent ones, Beltram and Kina, who I only even remember their names uh, <laughs> after they're finally gone from the episode, uh, they've already been taken uh, to Bajor, and uh, Bashir says he should take him to Deep Space Nine for uh, treatment, but Mullabox says no. Uh, Bashir, frustrated, goes outside to where Kira is and unsurprisingly expresses willingness to violate an expressed boundary and take him to Deep Space Nine anyway, but Kira also says no. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. At this point, we see that Kira starts to like, she takes off her uniform jacket and just starts like helping build uh, part of Mullabox, uh, like this oven uh, barbecue tandoor thing in his front yard. So we cut immediately to Bashir being back on the station telling Cisco about this. And uh, he's really angry, uh, but uh, doesn't want but his his he doesn't want to immediately just punish Kira, so he tells Bashir to uh, cover for her by filing an official medical request that Kira remain on the on the moon for human humanitarian reasons. And uh, the cuts between uh, the uh, we we go we spend a lot as we get further into the episode, the cuts between the two plots uh, become fewer and fewer. So we go immediately back to Mullabach and Kira. On uh, on the moon as Kira's sort of nursing Mullabach back to health, and uh, he taught uh, Kira now spins a yarn talking about how when she was young there was a big old tree that in her front yard that uh, had uh, dug itself so deep into the soil that nothing else could grow in the spot where it was, and it was had grown there so long that it was an obstruction. Uh, and it was a big, selfish, annoying, nasty old tree. Uh, and and uh, Mullabach seems to appreciate the comparison. But uh, at this point, uh, Cisco then calls Kira, having arrived on a runabout himself, uh, and he's going to beam down. And what I notice here is that uh, Mullabach's immediate response to Cisco being present and going to uh, beam down is... Uh, he doesn't have much faith in you, does he? Like immediately jumping to sowing seeds of doubt, which actually I was just reading Memory Alpha 
And uh, I think this is a good point to bring up that apparently the writer's original intent for Mullabach was to be a lot less of a sympathetic character and to be a little bit more expressly manipulative. And it was just sort of the uh, performance of this actor ended up imbuing him with more of a, uh, a charming, you know, sympathetic nature than was originally intended. But this line, I think, uh, has the original intent much more clear. But uh, Cisco arrives. He very cleverly bypasses having to fight with Mullabach because uh, Cisco seems to know what kind of uh, uh, time can be wasted by just engaging uh, with an older white man who just wants to be uh, uh, surly at you. Uh, he just frames it as his presence is just being about out of concern for Kira jeopardizing her career. So uh, they are able to uh, go off and just talk to each other. And Cisco uh, finally highlights what we've been sort of feeling uh, subtextually here that uh, he appreciates and understands how she automatically sympathizes with the underdog. But uh, she has to understand and accept that she is now on the other side of the power dynamic. You know, she's she's no longer the one resisting against, you know, power and force. But she is the one who was unfortunately in a position that has to um, enforce somebody else's will on somebody else against their wishes. And there's a nice moment of vulnerability between Kira and Cisco here, because Kira, you know, very directly just says, you know, it, it feels awful. Um, and Kira and Cisco, interestingly, he just, he goes straight to saying that he likes Kira. Uh, he says, you know, originally I thought you were hostile and arrogant, but I know that's not the case. And that, that, yeah, I like you and I need you and you have a life ahead of you uh, more so than this stubborn old dude. Um, and then he just leaves to let Kira figure it out. I thought that was an interesting choice to frame it not so much in like, you know, it's not like it not the the mechanics of the power being used here are not to the same oppressive ends as the Cardassians were, but more just, hey, on an interpersonal level, you individually are a good person and that should absolve you of the guilt that you feel right now. We then have another scene where uh, Kira is nursing Mullabach as he's asleep and overhears him, you know, uh, having a nightmare about memories from his labor camp. Like Kira at this point is like very full of um, familial affection for him. So we uh, cut back to Jake and Nog are playing cards again. And Nog is just very unhappy about the fact that they now have just some land. Uh, that apparently to him is useless. And I just kept thinking like, come on, Nog, just invent the concept of Airbnb for Ferengi and you're going to be the fucking king of the Ferengi uh, economy. Come on. <laughs> it's interesting that they made Jake the human, the better businessman than Nog. But humans did invent capitalism after all. But essentially Nog and Jake are the Yankee traders Data warned us about. Yeah, so but so finally, uh, interesting in this episode, Odo's uh, the one who comes with uh, presenting an opportunity instead of squashing the fun because Odo's in uh, the bar talking to Quark uh, about trying to figure out who the No J Consortium are because there's a uh, Bajoran government official who's contacted him looking to uh, build on the parcel of land that happened to uh, serendipitously be the parcel of land that. Uh, uh, Nog and Jay now own. 
So Odo originally suspects that Quark is involved, and that's why he's talking to Quark. But Quark is angry that he's not. After after Odo leaves, Quark decides to try and use his magical hacker uh, electronic Kino machine in, in the bar to find out who these people are. But Nog comes straight to him to admit it and say that he'll sell Quark the land for five bars of gold pressed platinum. So finally, we reach we finally reach the goal here. It's, it all comes back to just extorting your uncle for money. I guess that's how things work. That's the moral we learn about how how all good business business uh, deals should end. But uh, we get back to it's the new morning on Gerardo. Mullabach is out of his is out of bed. He's continuing to build his sort of furnace oven thing. That uh, you know, just sort of that's been the the little bit of visual business in a lot of the scenes he's been in over this whole episode, and it's finally finished. Uh, Kira decides she's she is going to leave and go back to her job, but uh, you know, gives gives Mullabach an ultimatum that it's like you know, like either leave or you're gonna freaking die but he says as long as that cottage is standing i stay here and uh cure responds by setting the fucking cottage on fire uh, which you know moral obligate moral implications aside i'm just like the the teenager brain in me is just like yeah fire hardcore awesome um but uh she says kind of poignantly uh, it's time to move on with our lives, both yours and mine. Sort of harping on uh, this thing that you know, Kira's reaction. Molabach, of course, you know, is stuck in having to live this particular life that he's built for himself. And Kira is Kira's reaction to Molabach has been her being stuck in you know her life that she had during the occupation and almost wanting to return to that dynamic. But uh, I I like you know. Uh, I, I like that the show ends, it cuts to the credits right as they beam off the planet and we don't really see any kind of specific thing about what happens to Mullabach. And, and I, I sort of like that as a nice little uh, dramatic, it almost feels like sort of stage theatery, you know, that, that, that uh, we, the lights fade to black like right before we even get the definitive uh, resolution of the plot, uh, the, like, like that we before we see any definitive consequences uh, of what's happened in the show. So I have mixed feelings about the ending because the ending, as you mentioned, was real abrupt for both the A and B plot. We saw good characters in Kira and Jake act in ways that we wouldn't say was good. But I think that's the point of this episode, that the path of progress requires harm or that you have to do some bad things for the greater good, neither of which I agree with. But with the abrupt ending, the show doesn't really take a stance that those are good arguments either, right? It just says those are arguments people make. We're not saying those are good arguments. We're just going to end it here, which I appreciate. But still, it just sort of ended, which felt less artistic and more just lazy. Because up until then, I really enjoyed the episode, especially the guest performance by Brian Keith, who was a really well-known actor in his day. I think his most famous role was in the original Parent Trap, and he did a whole lot of Westerns. And here I am just dismissing him as budget Kirk <laughs> Douglas. I'm, I'm Philistine. And so the episode brought up some really interesting moral questions where I was like, DS9, you're really going to go there? And just when I was curious to see how they would make this all make sense, it ended. It's as if they asked questions and had characters do things they didn't know how to address or explain. Like Kira burns down everything a person cares about and cherishes. 
then kidnaps him. Jake pursues trickery and profit and is really good at it. The end. I remember the anime series Samurai Champloo. So it, it had an episode where the main characters died. But then the next episode, everything was back to normal. And the director said he did it to make fun of episodics. Simpsons do this all the time. That same parody, right? Because the joke is that I get to reset next episode. Even old cartoons would make fun of how episodic TV shows at the time relied on that storytelling convention. That's how they got away with certain endings. Because it relies on the next episode to reset back to the status quo. So I feel like this is an episode where the writers did a great job and then fumbled at the finish line. I feel like the main problem with the A plot, though, was that it just felt like a lot of the scenes were between Kira and Molobok were kind of repetitive. Like it, it, there was, you know, and, and obviously Brian Keith, you know, very charming and, and, you know, I could watch, I mean, you know, my, my mom's side of the family is from Tennessee. I definitely have many familiar, familiar experiences with, you know, old men who like to just tell long rambling stories that are probably all lies. Um, and I could watch that, but I just felt like they're, they're, they could have spent more time, yeah, addressing the, the moral ambiguities of it, you know, like maybe spend more time on, you know, how Kira, you know, and Cisco just sort of suss out, you know, the conflict of responsibility with guilt. But I think this almost sort of summarizes the challenge of Star Trek being a piece of pop culture working within you know, corporate capitalist entertainment that still tries to convey some, you know, uh, messages or philosophical inspections that challenge the dominant ideology and that there's only going to be so much room in which they can pursue those messages before they have to then uh, cut the brakes, uh, sorry, pump the brakes before it gets truly threatening. Kira needed to tell Mullibach, this is no country for old men. Ah, well done, Sam. (laughs) Well done. Well, if you liked our discussion of progress, then uh, stay tuned for next week when we go into uh, DS9 episode 1 by 16. If wishes were horses, uh, that promises some silliness, I think. Um, If you like this episode and you like the show in general, also, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash southpawpod. And for as little as $4 a month, you can join our Discord and you can become part of the lovely Southpaw community and support all the different shows in the Southpaw network, like this one, uh, Southpaw Prime. Uh, It's not the actual name. That's just what I call it. But Fight Study, uh, um, Pride Never Die, which is mixed martial arts from an LGBTQ perspective, and also Working Stiff Radio, which covers professional wrestling. And, you know, there's always more content that we solicit from our community members like alternative commentaries uh there's just a lot of stuff going on uh listen you know we talk about food too there's a great uh, southpaw episode about filipino food this whole network contains multitudes <laughs> if you want more info you read you have eyes read the show notes sam spends a lot of time writing those don't ignore them until next time Ta-da-da-da.